0: Our second lesson this morning comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. It's found in the 17th chapter and begins at the 5th verse. The Apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you may eat, or eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us begin our time of meditation in prayer. Lord God, send now your Holy Spirit so that the word we share in this place and the fellowship we enjoy in your creation might inspire our lives to faithful love of one another and to faithful devotion to you before all other things. Amen. I know a little boy who when he was in the kitchen with his mother a long time ago was told sternly, do not get into the chocolate that I keep here in the cupboard. That chocolate you might have guessed was for something mom was going to bake in the future. I knew when I was that young person. Then mom intended that if I ate those chocolates without her permission, I would surely get it later. And I don't mean get chocolate. Those delicious brown squares may have made me feel good for a little while, but there would be a heavy price to pay when mom find out that her baking supplies were gone. I knew that there would be a punishment that would fit the consequence of my crime. Consider another possibility. What if mom, God rest her soul, were, bit, were, were to have taken me into the bathroom and then pointed to the cabinet that was in that place and told me not to eat the little chocolates that were kept there? Right? If my desire as a kid for the taste of chocolate overcame her words of warning that echoed in my mind, and still echo these many years later, what would happen? Would I be punished? <laughs> we all know, I hope, that when we eat an unneeded dose of x the flavor of the medicine may taste eh, reasonably good at first, but the very act of taking the medicine will bring on its own punishment." Mom will not have to be that person who comes and brings the punishment later. The crime of disobedience sometimes, as is the case here, brings its own punishment down upon us. We all, I hope, have learned these lessons pretty early in life. If not, maybe you learned something just now. And we learn that punishment usually follows disobedient or unfavorable behavior sooner, if not later there are in fact consequences for our behavior. We will be held to account perhaps in this life, perhaps as a direct consequence for our actions, and one day our great creator God will call us to account for our sins as well. These things will happen as surely as B follows A in the alphabet. Now let's double back, I guess I should say circle back these days, Let us go back and revisit those chocolatey situations. Suppose I don't eat the chocolates in the kitchen cabinet, right? If I'm obedient and leave those chocolates alone, mom might make a cake for me someday in the future, right? The cake she makes, it might be for me, but it might be for someone else. It might be, say, for a church social. But in any case, if I'm faithful, someday, someday, Mom will make a cake for me, and it'll be my favorite flavor, a German chocolate. Now, let's turn again to those slightly less attractive uh, chocolates that are kept in the other room. If we are obedient regarding the instructions given us in the bathroom and do not eat those x lax squares, what will be our reward? What's in it for us? We will certainly not have the taste of sort of chocolate. Our hunger will not be satisfied. Our desires will not be fulfilled. Is there any reward that we can measure for doing what mom tells us in a case like that? Or does life just simply go on? It's not a surprise to any of us. We're breathing. And so we know that we live in America, and we live in the 21st century. We live in what some have called the age of self-gratification. My interpretation of that is people who live as we do in this age want stuff, and we want stuff now. And when we get that stuff, we want that stuff to make us feel good. Most folks think the same sorts of thoughts when it comes to following the rules that we encounter out there in the world or out there in our community. If following a rule doesn't do something for us or or make us feel good, we choose to ignore or perhaps even break that rule. All we have to do to prove this to ourselves is to go out on what I would call a county road or as we do live in, living in Albuquerque, just go out on one of our two interstate highways, and as we drive along, observe how many other drivers keep the speed of their car below the posted limit. It won't take you long to count them. Trust me. Almost without exception, drivers will recognize that there will be a punishment if they're caught stealing. Granted, it's rare, but they recognize that fact. But they also recognize no reward for faithfully driving according to the posted rules. So, as we all know, those rules are largely ignored. Now, when it comes to our faith, our faith in God, we must admit most of us have pretty much the same sort of attitude about rewards. We think that if we perform good and faithful service, God will, re- will reward us. If we have faith, we often think, we can make anything happen. We can. Our faith is that strong. For example, a student may pray that they will be rewarded with a good grade on their research assignment in the coming week. If we come to think that a faithful prayer itself will bring about that good grade, what have we just done? Have we not come to believe that it is our faith that makes things happen in the world? What did God do in all of this? And and where is God in a belief that's like that? I'll ask you. Again, what did God do? Did he write that research paper? Of course not. Did God have a hand in the professor's work in evaluating what we turned in? Did God magically change the grade on the paper in order to make you feel good about having prayed for a good grade in the first place? And what if you receive a not-so-shiny grade? What then? Was it because your prayer wasn't good enough? It was somehow lacking? Was it because you simply didn't have enough faith You know, these questions sound like 21st century stuff, it sounds like the stuff of our lives, but in fact, these questions have been with us for all these 2,000 years since Jesus walked among us. That's why Jesus' disciples came to the Lord, they had those same sorts of questions, and he asked Jesus to add to their faith, because their faith wasn't bringing them the results that they were looking for. The way in which they asked Jesus for more faith is, to me, interesting it's almost as if they want that faith attached to their bodies somehow like something extra we could imagine super glue which didn't exist then but we can imagine super glue being used to stick more faith to their chest somehow or or maybe they were to have some sort of prosthetic device with faith labeled on it stuck to their bodies so that they would be that much more effective and that much more strong in the world my People my age, when they think about those kinds of devices, think about, you know, the six million dollar man or the bionic woman that was on TV in our youth. It's sort of like that, when they were asking for more faith to be more effective in the world, when they approached Jesus. But then Jesus' response to his disciples is quite surprising itself. He tells them, in the famous words that we've heard so many times in churches before, if those disciples have the faith as large as a tiny little mustard seed, they might be able to tell a mulberry tree to uproot itself and replant itself in the middle of the lake. Think about that for a minute. Just wait a minute and think about Jesus' words. A mulberry tree in Palestine can grow to be 60 feet tall, six stories. It's a big deal, right? And it it has a notoriously large big bunch of root structure as well. So as big as it is on the top, it's like an iceberg, it's huge below as well. In the 2000 years since Jesus spoke those words, and I'm sure before as well, Not one single mulberry tree has ever been witnessed to have come up out of the ground and planted itself in a lake, let alone the Sea of Galilee. Now, are we somehow to believe that if we have faith the size of a tiny little mustard seed, that we might be rewarded by having the power capable of causing some huge tree to jump up in the air and do the impossible? Is that what Jesus is trying to teach us here? Sisters and brothers, when we hear Jesus describe the power of faith that can move mulberry trees, we often recall another biblical saying that's so very similar. And that is that faith can move mountains. We've heard that too, right? Well, maybe faith can move mountains. I know that God's faithfulness can move mountains. After all, he he created the entire cosmos, including all of those beautiful mountains out there, in the beginning. But I'm here today, brothers and sisters, to tell you that you don't need faith to make mulberry trees grow in funny places, and you don't need faith to move mountains. Magicians can make trees appear to be all kinds of places, including lakes, and we can get bulldozers and dynamite to do all kinds of things to mountains. Jesus made what I believe to be absurd descriptions about the power of faith to make a point and make a point that we need to hear today. And that point is that we are not to have faith to make things happen for our instant gratification. Instead, we are to have faith to move something far more stubborn than a big old gnarly tree or some tremendous mountain like the Sandias. Brothers and sisters, we need faith at least the size of a tiny little mustard seed to move ourselves. Don't get me wrong, we we are all God's faithful people. That's what brought us here this day. But without exception, there is room for each and every one of us, pastors included, to grow in our faith. More faith, however, cannot be expected to bring us more stuff or more success. Faith is not the source of money or prestige or honor, good grades in school, or a nice looking tree in our front yard. Instead, more faith brings us more faith. And it's our faith that draws us closer to the kingdom of God. There's this wonderful realization The idea that our faith is the way in which God works in creation becomes the true source of human freedom. Faith brings about the most extraordinary results. We can live with the understanding that our growth in faith need not be proved by the miracles that people think that we work or by the tricks that we can play on others. Instead, our growth in faith is evidence of God's tremendous power Power to create things out of nothing. Faith, then, is what God uses to create things out of us. Seemingly nothing. That's right. We're not called to move great trees or even mountains, but to move ourselves. Jesus calls all his disciples to move themselves to greater faith in him. The faithfulness to which Jesus calls us today may be small, each of us to our own, but it surely has plenty of room to grow. And by faith, even as small as the smallest seed, we can grow to live by his teachings of discipleship, his teachings to follow in his example. So, okay, preacher, you might be thinking, I hope you're thinking, What does this faithfulness Jesus teaches look like? After all, I can can see mountains, I can see trees, I can see chocolates no matter where they're stored, but I can't see or even measure faith. I admit, we can't wear faith on our sleeves. We we can't have it printed on a multicolored attractive t-shirt, unless it says Faith Lutheran Church, but that's an exception. We can't put faith on true personal display. However, Jesus did give us the perfect example of faithfulness in his life on earth. He was faithful, bless you, he is faithful to God's call even unto the cross. In this greatest of faithfulness examples, Christ didn't suffer the crucifixion in order to call attention to himself. He didn't. He didn't do that. He didn't go to the cross to show off his tremendous power either. Clearly, he didn't use any power. Indeed, hardly anyone in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion even noticed he was on the cross. That's how much attention he drew to himself. His closest friends all hid in shame or they ran away in fear as it happened. Only a small, tiny number of women, only they, came anywhere near on that first Good Friday. Jesus' faithfulness gave him no satisfaction on that day. His reward would come later, and it would be a gift for others. His his act on the cross was the ultimate faith in action. I say to you this morning, God's grace given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is for you. Those should be familiar words to you, for you. Luther called them the most essential words in the sacrament of the altar, the Lord's Supper, as we now call it. It is for you. When we gather for the Lord's Supper, you will hear that those two words uttered again and again. When you receive the elements in your hands or have them blessed as you brought forward, you will hear that this is the body of Christ or the blood of Christ um, given or shed for you. The example of faith given us by Jesus Christ is a faith that reaches out beyond the needs of people in the here and now because it, sees, it seeks the needs of still other people, people in all times and in all places. Let me be a little closer to home. Let your mind's eye look around you this morning and see faith in action. It's here. Let me describe it for you. There are people working this month in many ways to help the ministry of The Rock at Noonday. It's our church's mission partner this month. Some people are helping the homeless meet their physical needs at The Rock. They, They are helping provide a place where a meal can be offered or clothing can be distributed. Let your mind's eye see the people who give the gift of financial resources also to help the Rock recover all of its blessed ministries after so many were shut down during the pandemic. The efforts of those among us are not made with the idea that our volunteers and givers will be rewarded by some sort of personal recognition. In fact, many of these folks would be absolutely embarrassed if I were to point them out among us this morning. Our volunteers following the example of Jesus Christ, don't expect to be paid, nor do they have any illusion that their work will bring them closer to the promise of eternal life. That promise, that promise of life everlasting has already been delivered by Jesus on the cross. And so, this faithful work of our sisters and brothers is being done for others. In essence, what they're saying to our neighbors is, this gift of grace is for you. Members of this congregation are saying those sorts of things, not only at the Rock, although that's very important in our emphasis this month, but they're saying it all over the world, all through the year, all the time, through their faithful actions. This gift, they say, is for you, to our brothers and sisters. God has acted through our congregation and its gift of dedication with the result, hope for that faith may grow both here and in places eh, a distance from this room. Not to mention that uh, faith may grow in the lives of God's children who find themselves homeless today and serviced by the rock. That, sisters and brothers, is what faith in action looks like. When we leave this time of worship in just a few moments, we will ask ourselves nagging questions that have been with us throughout our lives and in fact have been with our brothers and sisters for 2,000 years. Questions like, what's in it for me if I don't eat the chocolates? Either kind. Why should I open, or excuse me, why should I obey the speed limit signs when so many other people don't do it? Where is the reward for faithfully serving for the benefit of those in need or, or teaching God's word to our young people or praying for the poor and the sick? When we ask questions like this, and there are dozens of them, when we ask questions of ourselves like this because we doubt our faith, sisters and brothers, I say to you, you're asking yourself the wrong questions. The question, the one question we should be asking ourselves this day and every day is, how might I live faithfully to my baptismal promises so that the power of God may be known to all? so that others hear us say, this gift of grace is for you. The answer I can give you this morning is from our psalm, as read by Jessica. Be still, and let God give you the answer. Let us pray once again. Lord God, we ask that you lead us by your hand as we commit our ways to you and put our trust in you, for you will accomplish all faithful things. We need your help as we put aside the selfish desires of our own hearts. And, though growing in faith, we wait patiently for you, O Lord, for you are the one who is truly faithful. Amen. (laughs)